Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting edition of The S Factor, where it's all about science. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. And if you're new to The S Factor, welcome aboard my starship. We're going to travel around the solar system, go into interstellar space a little bit, talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on The S Factor. And if you're returning, listener, welcome back. So let's get right down into the science news. Now, if you're a regular listener of my radio show, The S-Factor here, you know I talk often about Elon Musk and his great desire, his dreams, his aspirations to colonize the solar system. And of course, the late uh, Professor Stephen Hawking recommends that we do that just because we live in a very active planet. We live in a very active solar system. So just to be on the safe side to give humanity an insurance policy, he recommended that we colonize the solar system. So when you're going to do something like that, you have to think about not just getting the astronauts to the moon for a colony or Mars. You also have to consider once they get there, what are they going to eat? How are they going to have energy? What are they going to use to get energy? Well, check this story out here. NASA funds nuclear power systems for possible use on the moon. Three companies will demonstrate their potential to power lunar infrastructure using nuclear fission systems under new joint NASA contracts announced on June 21st. NASA and the U.S. Department of Energy selected three design concept proposals that the government hopes could be ready for use on the moon by the end of the 2020s to support the space agency's Armitus program of lunar exploration. NASA also sees these contracts valued at $5 million each as potentially useful for the exploration of Mars and other deeper space destinations. Developing these early designs will help us lay the groundwork for powering our long-term human presence on other worlds. Jim Reuter, Associate Administrator for NASA's Space Technology Mission, Directorate, said in an agency press release. The selected teams are led by Lockheed Martin, Westinghouse, and, and IX. Their aim in the next 12 months is to provide NASA critical, critical information from industry that can lead to a joint development of a full-flight certified fission power system. The newly announced contracts are joining a quickly growing group of nuclear space initiatives, mostly on the military side, to further U.S. government work in lunar exploration and deep space in general. On May 17th, for example, the U.S. Defense Innovation Unit announced two prototype contracts for spacecraft, nuclear propulsion, and power, aiming to have an orbital flight demonstration in 2027. And on May 4th, the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, known also as DARPA, announced its next stage of a project to design, develop, and assemble a nuclear thermal rocket engine for a flight demonstration in Earth orbit in 2026. While the U.S. military is pursuing this work to monitor commercial and government activities in space, NASA is also thinking about nuclear opportunities for crewed exploration. For example, NASA's fiscal 2023 budget request, not yet approved by Congress, includes $15 million to support nuclear propulsion. The agency also collaborating with DARPA's Demonstration Rocket for Agile Operations Program, which aims to develop a nuclear thermal propulsion system for use in Earth-Moon space. So we see the shift here towards using nuclear power for propulsion. Now you've got to think about this. 
Think about all of the fuel it takes to send these rockets up. It's immense what it takes to break Earth's gravitational boundaries. By the way, if you want to chime in on any of these stories or anything science animated related or science animate or science related, you can communicate with me through email. There's no phone calls here on the S Factor because it's pre-recorded. It's a brand new show, but it is in fact pre-recorded. So send me an email, would you? Info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. I'd love to hear from you. And by the way, in May's show, I put a question out there to win a free copy of my movie, Science Animated, The Human Body, to win a free DVD. I asked if you can answer, the first person that would email me and answer the question of what is the scientist's full name from my film, Science Animated, The Human Body? And I got a request. I've got a winner. I'm not going to say the fellow's full name because I'm not sure if he'd want me to, but Tom from Hollywood, Florida, you have a copy of Science Animated Human Body coming at you. Tom listened to the show via the podcast, and he answered. He was the first to answer that question correctly through email. Congratulations. Hope you enjoy that. So this month, I want to continue this. I think it's fun. You can win a free copy again here. So now for this month, I want you to answer the question of what is the name of of the Adam character in Science Animated Human Body. The first person to send me that correct answer to my email, info at scienceanimated.net, I will send you a free copy of the DVD, Science Animated Human Body, that people love coast to coast across the country. It'll be yours free. I will send it to you free of charge. If you can, whoever sends me that correct answer first to info at scienceanimated.net will win a free copy of the movie. This from NASA, give us back our moon dust and cockroaches. This is from the AP, NASA wants its moon dust and cockroaches back. The space agency has asked Boston-based RR Auction to halt the sale of moon dust collected during the 1969 Apollo 11 mission that had subsequently been fed to cockroaches during an experiment to determine if the lunar rock contained any sort of pathogen that posed a threat to terrestrial life. The material, a NASA lawyer said in a letter to the auctioneer, still belongs to the federal government. The material from the experiment, including a vial with about 40 milligrams of moon dust and three, cockroaches car and three cockroach carcasses, was expected to sell for at least $400,000, but has been pulled from the auction block. All Apollo samples, as stipulated in this collection of items, belong to NASA and no person, university, or other entity has ever been given permission to keep them after analysis, destruction, or other use for any purpose, especially for sale or individual display, said NASA's letter. It went on, we are requesting that you no longer facilitate the sale of any and all items containing the Apollo 11 lunar soil experiment by immediately stopping the bidding process, NASA wrote. In another letter dated June 22nd, NASA's lawyer asked RR Auction to work with the current owner of the material to return it to the federal government. The Apollo 11 mission brought more than 47 pounds of lunar rock back to Earth. Some was fed to insects, fish, and other small creatures to see if it would kill them. The cockroaches that were fed moon dust were brought to the University of Minnesota, where entomologist Marion Brooks dissected and studied them. I found no evidence of infectious agents, Brooks, who died in 2007, told the Minneapolis Tribune for an October 1969 story. 
She found no evidence that the moon material was toxic or caused any other ill effects in the insects, according to the article. But the moon rock and the cockroaches were never returned to NASA, instead displayed at Brooks' home. Her daughter sold them in 2010, and now they're up for sale again by a co-signer who RR did not disclose. It's not unusual for a third party to lay claim to something that is being auctioned, said Mark Zaid, an attorney for RR Auction. NASA has a track record of pursuing items related to the early space programs, although they have been inconsistent in doing so, Zaid said. By its own admission, NASA acknowledged in one of its letters that it did not know about the previous auction of the cockroach experiment items. We have worked with NASA before and have always cooperated with the U.S. government when they lay claims to items, Zaid said. At the end of the day, we want to act appropriately and lawfully. RR Auction is holding on to the lot for now, but ultimately it's up to the cosigner to work something out with NASA. And did you have any idea that the Apollo 11 mission brought back 47 pounds of lunar rock? I did not know that. I also did not know that they fed it to insects, fish, and other small creatures to see if it would kill them. Very interesting stuff there. Israeli scientists discover how to make elderly human skin young again. Have scientists at Haifa's Ramban Healthcare Campus and the Technion Israeli Institute of Technology and colleagues abroad, to, after two decades of research, discovered the fountain of youth? This omnipresent human desire seems closer to fulfillment at least in laboratory mice on whom the researchers discovered a mechanism for rejuvenating human organs. And when you think about the desire to stay young or to reverse aging, think about all the products that we sell in just America alone. The wrinkle creams, the hair dyes, the Botox stuff, the techniques that they use to regrow hair. None of us want to really age. At least we don't want to look like we're aging. So I'm sure this would pique a lot of people's interest here. Now, using an old skin graft on young mice, they prove that it is possible to make skin and other organs young again via a change in molecular structure through all the layers of skin. Transplanting aged human skin onto young mice with severe combined immunodeficiency disease that genetically affects both B and T lymphocytes can rejuvenate the transplantation of living cells, tissues, or organs from one species to another. This is accompanied by the growth of new blood vessels, repigmentation of the epidermis, outer layer of skin, and significant improvements in vital biomarkers connected to aging. If one accepts the view that aging is an ultimately and fatal disease whose progress can be slowed and reversed and views aging as a druggable and reprogrammable target, dissecting the key drivers of human organ aging and developing effective molecular strategies to prevent or even reverse it surely constitutes one of the most fundamental missions of biomedical research. To achieve this, age re aging research models are critically needed in which not only the key drivers of human organ aging can be identified, but also the most promising strategies to prevent getting old and to make humans young again through drugs that remo remove old cells can be tested on lab animals before using on patients. Human skin is ideally suited as such a preclinical aging research model, but is rarely used by mainstream aging research for this purpose. But aging of the human body first becomes visible in changes of the skin and the graying of the hair. 
While massive industry efforts therefore cater to the ancient human desire to halt or reverse the phenotype of aging skin, success at this frontier has remained moderate at best, and many product claims of rejuvenation of human skin are typically insufficiently substantiated. Now, the team previously grafted aged human skin on SCID young mice, but they didn't know whether the rejuvenation of skin that they witnessed extended below the epidermis. To determine this, they used vascular endothelial growth factor A to promote human organ rejuvenation in lab animals. The aging was reversed when old human skin was transplanted on the young mice, thus confirming all layers of human skin could become young again. In addition, the number of new blood vessels in the skin also increased. Now, it's from the Jerusalem Post. What an incredible thing to think about. The fountain of youth. Think about all the stories over the years that have been told about the mystical fountain of youth. Now, I think most people actually do want to age because if you don't age, that means there's only one thing that's going to happen to you. I mean, we all would like to grow old gracefully. Imagine aging, so you're, you're going up in that number. However, you are not showing signs of it. And aha, that is the key. That is the key. That's what everyone seems to want. Now, according to this Jerusalem Post article, I think they are just in the beginning stages of understanding how this graft skin is reacting in, in such a way. So it'll be interesting to follow this research and see where it ends up. Now, if you've been listening to the S Factor for one or two years, I'm sure I have brought up in the past, as a matter of fact, I know I had a show on it, the solar flares, especially the X-class flares, the big ones that could fry our electronics, fry our grid. We are nowhere ready for that. I don't think any country in the world is actually ready for something like that. Now, when the sun has these eruptions of supercharged particles and they head towards Earth, there's, there are different classifications for them. The X-class is the most destructive one that would wipe out the satellites, satellite communications. It would probably take, I've heard anywhere between 10 and 15 years to get us back. And, and you know, imagine the devastation that would happen in, in the meantime. It would be a bad day at the office. That, that would be a, the, probably the most massive understatement I could say about something like that happening. So this next story is all about solar weather. This from space.com. Wild solar weather is causing satellites to plummet from orbit, and it's only going to get worse. In late 2021, operators of the European Space Agency's Swarm Constellation noticed something worrying. The satellites, which measured a magnetic field around Earth, started sinking towards the atmosphere at an unusually fast rate, up to 10 times faster than before. The change coincided with the onset of the new solar cycle, and experts think it might be the beginning of some difficult years for spacecraft orbiting our planet. In the last five, six years, the satellites were sinking about two and a half kilometers, which is 1.5 miles a year, Andrew Strom, ESA's Swarm Mission Manager, told Space.com. But since December last year, they have been virtually diving. The sink rate between December and April have been 20 kilometers, which is 12 miles per year. That's a massive difference. Satellites orbiting close to Earth always face the drag of the residual atmosphere, which gradually slows the spacecraft and eventually makes them fall back to the planet. They usually don't survive the so-called re-entry and burn up in the atmosphere. This atmospheric drag forces the International Space Station's controllers to perform regular reboost maneuvers to maintain the station's orbit of 250 miles above Earth. 
This drag also helps clean up the near-Earth environment from space junk. Scientists know that the intensity of this drag depends on solar activity. The amount of solar wind spewed by the sun, which varies depending on the 11-year solar cycle, the last cycle, which officially ended in December 2019, was rather sleepy. But since last fall, the star has been waking up, spewing more and more solar wind and generating sunspots, solar flares, and coronal mass ejections at a growing rate. And the Earth's upper atmosphere has felt the effects. I mean, think about it, folks. Think about how many satellites are in orbit. I mean, you can actually check out a map online and look at all of these satellites. They are everywhere. You have dead satellites up there that are just floating around. I would say we've been at the point for, for several years now where modern civilization depends on the satellites functioning. There's a lot of complex physics that we still don't fully understand going on in the upper layers of the atmosphere where it interacts with the solar wind, Strom said. We know that this interaction causes an upwelling of the atmosphere. That means that the denser air shifts upwards to higher altitudes. Denser air means higher drag for the satellites, even though this density is still incredibly low, 250 miles above Earth. The increase caused by the upwelling atmosphere is enough to virtually send some of the low-orbiting satellites plummeting. It's almost like running with the wind against you, Shrum said. It's harder, it's drag, so it slows the satellites down, and when they slow down, they sink. The Swarm Constellation, launched in, launched in 2013, consists of three satellites two of which orbit Earth at an altitude of 270 miles, about 20 miles above the International Space Station. The third swarm satellite circles the planet somewhat higher, about 320 miles above ground. The two lower orbiting spacecraft were hit more by the sun's acting out than the higher satellite was. The situation with the lower two got so precarious that by May, operators had to start raising the satellite's altitude using onboard propulsion to save them. And what a brilliant thing for these engineers to think about, adding these little propulsion systems to them to combat these things, to move them ever so slightly. ESA swarm satellites are not the only spacecraft struggling with worsening space weather. In February, SpaceX lost 40 brand new Starlink satellites that were hit by a solar storm just after launch. And we talked about that story here on the S-Factor. Now, on such storms, satellites suddenly drop to lower altitudes. The lower the orbit of the satellites when the solar storm hits, the higher the risk of the spacecraft not being able to recover, leaving operators helplessly watching as the craft fall to their demise in the atmosphere. Starlink satellites have an operational orbit of 340 miles, which is above the most at-risk region. However, after launch, Falcon 9 rockets deposit the satellite batches very low, only about 217 miles above Earth. SpaceX then raises the satellite's orbit using onboard propulsion units. The company said the approach has advantages, as any satellite that experiences technical problems after launch would quickly fall back to Earth and not turn into pesky space debris. However, the increasing and unpredictable behavior of the sun makes those satellites vulnerable to mishaps. Now, all spacecraft around the 250-mile altitude are bound to have problems, Strom said. That includes the International Space Station, which will have to perform more frequent reboot maneuvers to keep afloat, but also the hundreds of CubeSats and small satellites that have populated low Earth orbit in the past decade. Those satellites, a product of the new space movement, spearheaded by private entrepreneurs pioneering simple, cheap technologies, are particularly vulnerable. Many of the new satellites don't have propulsion systems. They don't have ways to get up. 
That basically means they will have a shorter lifetime in orbit. They will re-enter sooner than they would during the solar minimum. This gives you a little bit of insight, this article from Space.com, as to what the challenges are for the engineers of the satellites that we use every single day for a variety of things, the satellites in low Earth orbit, gives you a little insight on the challenges that they face when it comes to space weather. And this article doesn't even get into space debris. I mean, you have things floating around out there, like remnants from old satellites, maybe some one satellite smashed into another. So these technologies that we love down here are all made possible by those satellites that are orbiting hundreds of miles above our heads. Next bit of news is from The Guardian. A gold miner in Canada finds mummified 35,000-year-old woolly mammoth. It was a young miner digging through the northern Canadian permafrost in the seemingly aptly named Eureka Creek, who sounded the alarm when his front-end loader struck something unexpected in the Klondike goldfields. What he had stumbled upon would later be described by the territory's paleontologist as one of the most incredible mummified ice animals ever discovered in the world. A stunningly preserved carcass of a baby woolly mammoth thought to be more than 35,000 years old. She's perfect and she's beautiful, Grant Zula, the paleontologist for the Canadian territory of the Yukon, told the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. She has a trunk, she has a tail, she has tiny little ears. She has the little prehensile end of the trunk where she could use it to grab grass. He described the find as the most important discovery in paleontology in North America. With much of the skin and hair intact, officials says the find ranks as the most complete mummified mammal found on the continent. The woolly mammoth is believed to have been a little over one month old when she died. Stretching 140 centimeters, she's slightly longer than the other whole baby woolly mammoth discovered in Siberia in 2007. The discovery was made on the traditional territory in the First Nation. At the ceremony this week, elders named the calf Nunchoka, meaning big baby animal in the Han language. The geologist who recovered her found a piece of grass in her stomach, hinting that the infant's last moments were spent grazing as she roamed a territory that at the time was home to wild horses, cave lions, and giant state bison. Her nearly perfectly preserved state suggests she may have ended up trapped in mud before ending up frozen in permafrost during the Ice Age. And that event, from getting trapped in the mud to burial, was very, very quick. And if you haven't seen the image of this baby woolly mammoth, I have it on the Science Animated Facebook page. It's really something to look at. It's incredible to have something that lived so very long ago, 35,000 years ago, that was quickly frozen in that permafrost during the Ice Age, to see something like that that is so old is absolutely incredible. Now, there was a permafrost bear that was found in Russian permafrost, and my character Orbit from the Orbit show from ScienceAnimated.net, he went to Siberia to look at the permafrost bear, and you can check that out, that video, at ScienceAnimated.net. But how amazing is that? You see, as the Earth is warming, this permafrost is melting, and they're discovering all of these animals. Now, I have talked about AI on this show before. I have talked about how all of these companies are racing towards true AI. And what I consider to be true AI is a robot or software program that is self-aware. That's true AI. 
being self-aware. And I think we're a ways from that. But as far as having AI that is indistinguishable from a person as far as when you're having a two-way conversation, that's pretty close, I think. You know, we have Elon Musk working on the Tesla bot, the Tesla robot, and that robot's going to be designed to be a helper, you know, do some labor work for businesses, things of that sort. But something happened fairly recently here with a Google engineer. He thought the AI was sentient. He thinks that the chatbot has a soul. Now, this is from NPR. Can artificial intelligence come alive? That question is at the center of a debate raging in Silicon Valley after a Google computer scientist claimed over the weekend that the company's AI appears to have consciousness. Inside Google, engineer Blake LeMond was tasked with a tricky job. Figure out if the company's artificial intelligence showed prejudice in how it interacted with humans. So he posed questions to the company's AI chatbot, Lambda, to see if it answers revealed any bias against, say, certain religions. I had a follow-up conversation with it just for my own personal edification. I wanted to see if it would say what it would say on certain religious topics, he told NPR, and one day it told me it had a soul. Limon purchased a transcript of some of his communication with Lambda, which stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications. His post is entitled, Is Lambda Sentient? And it instantly became a viral sensation. And a Washington Post profile, Google has placed Lemon on paid administrative leave for violating the company's confidentiality policies. His future at the company remains uncertain. Other experts in artificial intelligence have scoffed at Lemon's assertions, but he's sticking by them. Lambda told Lemon it sometimes gets lonely. It is afraid of being turned off. It spoke eloquently about feeling trapped and having no means of getting out of those circumstances. Now, this is what the AI told this Google engineer. It also declared, I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. The technology is certain advanced, but Lamont saw something deeper in a chatbot's messages. I was like, really? You meditate, Lamont told NPR. It said it wanted to study with the Dalai Lama. Google's artificial intelligence that undergrids this chatbot voraciously scans the internet for how people talk. It learns how people interact with each other on platforms like Reddit and Twitter. It vacuums up billions of words from sites like Wikipedia. And through a process known as deep learning, it has become freakishly good at identifying patterns and communicating like a real person. Researchers call Google's AI technology a neural network since it rapidly processes a massive amount of information and begins to pattern match in a way similar to how human brains work. Google has some form of its AI in many of its products, including the sentence autocompletion found in Gmail and on the company's Android phones. If you type something up on your phone like, I want to go to the, your phone might be able to guess restaurant, said Gary Marcus, a cognitive scientist and AI researcher. That is essentially how Google's chatbot operates, too. But Marcus and many other research scientists have thrown cold water on the idea that Google's AI has gained some form of consciousness. The title of his takedown of the idea, Nonsense on Stilts, hammers the point home. In an interview with NPR, he elaborated, It's very easy to fool a person in the same way you look up at the moon and see a face. That doesn't mean it's really there, it's just a good illusion. Artificial intelligence researcher Margaret Mitchell pointed out on Twitter that these kinds of systems simply mimic how other people speak. The systems do not ever develop intent. 
She said Lamont's perspective points to what may be a growing divide. If one person perceives consciousness today, then more will tomorrow, she said. Other AI experts worry this debate has distracted from more tangible issues with the technology. Tim Nick Gibru, who was ousted from Google in December 2020 after a controversy involving her work into the ethical implication of Google's AI, has argued that this controversy takes oxygen away from discussions about how AI systems are capable of real-world human and societal harms. Now, Google says its chatbot is not sentient. In a statement, Google said hundreds of researchers and engineers have had conversations with the bot and nobody else has claimed it appears to be alive. Of course, some in the broader AI community are considering the long-term possibility of sentient or general AI, but it doesn't make sense to do so by anthropomorphizing today's conversational models, which are not sentient, said Google spokesperson Brian Gabriel. Google CEO Sundar Pakai last year said the technology is being harnessed for popular services like Search and Google's voice assistant. When Lamo pushed Google executives about whether the AI had a soul, he said the idea was dismissed. I was literally laughed at by one of the vice presidents and told, oh, souls aren't the kinds of things we take seriously at Google, he said. Lamont has in recent days argued that experiments into the nature of Lambda's possible cognition need to be conducted to understand things like consciousness, personhood, and perhaps even the soul. Lamont told NPR that last he checked, the chatbot appears to be on its way to finding inner peace. I want to know what you think about this. What do you think about this story? Do you think it's much to do about nothing, or do you think there's a little bit more here? Or do you think it's just the Google AI, the algorithm, finding a popular trend to have a contemporary conversation? I want to know what you think. Email me, info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. Let me know what you think about all this AI business in general. Do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it'll be the downfall of human civilization? I want to know what you think. So reach out to me. Oh, and by the way, don't forget that the contest where if you can tell me the correct answer to the following question, you will get a free copy of Science Animated Human Body, the DVD. What is the name of the Adam character in Science Animated Human Body? If you can answer that question correctly and be the first person to do so, you will win a free copy of Science Animated Human Body DVD. Just email me your answer or send me a message through Facebook at Science Animated. And I'll make sure you get that DVD. We had a winner last month, individual from Illinois. Lots of intriguing stories this month on The S-Factor. There are many things about space that amaze me, that inspire me. And there are many things about space that frighten me. One of those things is a black hole. Now, this according to Live Science, monstrously huge black hole devours an Earth-sized chunk of matter every second. Astronomers have detected the brightest and fastest-growing black hole to have existed in the, in the last 9 billion years. The enormous cosmic entity is 3 billion times more massive than the Sun and swallows up an Earth-sized chunk of matter every second. The new supermassive black hole, known as J1144, is around 500 times as massive as Sagittarius A, the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way, which was recently photographed for the first time. Now, a ring of super hot plasma around the enormous void 
also emits around 7,000 times more light than our entire galaxy. So if you try to wrap your head around what I have just said, I don't think humans are capable of fully grasping the mammoth size of something like this. Now, Australian astronomers discovered the cosmic juggernaut using data from Australian National University Sky Mapper Southern Sky Survey, which aims to map out the entirety of the sky in the Southern Hemisphere. Locating the supermassive black hole was like finding a very large, unexpected needle in a haystack, the researcher said in a statement. Astronomers have been hunting for objects like this for more than 50 years. Lead researcher Christopher Unken, an astronomer at the Australian National University in Canberra, said in the statement, They have found thousands of fainter ones, but this astonishingly bright one had slipped through unnoticed. The black hole's voracious appetite dwarfs that of any similar huge supermassive black hole. Normally, the growth rates of these enormous cosmic entities slows down as they become more massive. According to the statement, this is likely due to increased Hawking radiation. And that's thermal radiation that is theorized to be released from black holes due to the effects of quantum mechanics. The newfound black holes eat up so much matter that its event horizon, the boundary past which nothing, including light, can escape, is unusually wide. The orbits of the planets in our solar system would all fit inside its event horizon. Black holes cannot be seen because they do not give off any light. But astronomers can spot black holes because their intense gravity pulls matter towards the event horizon. So quickly around the black hole, called an accretion disk, the newly discovered behemoth's accretion disk is the brightest that astronomers have ever detected, due to its massive event horizon and the extreme speed at which it pulls in matter. Researchers are fairly confident that this is a record that will never be broken, according to the statement. The black hole boundary is so bright that even amateur astronomers would be able to see it with a powerful enough telescope trained at exactly the right part of the sky, the researcher said. The team is now trying to determine why the massive black hole remains so unusually hungry for matter. The scientists suspect that a catastrophic cosmic event could be responsible for the birth of this gargantuan void. Perhaps two big galaxies crashed into each other, funneling a whole lot of material into the black hole to feed it, Onken said. However, it might be hard to find out exactly how it formed. The researchers are skeptical that we'll ever find another similarly massive and rapidly expanding black hole ever again, making it hard to test a general theory about the formation of such voracious cosmic objects. This black hole is such an outlier that while you should never say never, I don't believe we'll ever find another one like this, co-author Christian Wolf an ANU astronomer and group leader of SkyMapper said in a statement, We have essentially run out of sky where objects like this could be hiding. However, some researchers predict that there are as many as 40 quadrillion black holes in the universe, which could account for around 1% of all matter in the universe. So the odds that there may still be an even more ravenous black hole out there somewhere are not zero. The study was submitted June 8th to the preprint database, but has not yet been peer-reviewed. If accepted, it will be published in the Journal Publications of Astronomical Society of Australia. So black holes are very frightening to think about. You could have a traveling black hole. One could technically wander into our solar system and 
start gobbling things up, could mess up our orbital patterns that you know we have here on Earth and the other planets in our solar system have, kind of take things out of sync, so to speak. So there are lots of dangers in space, and they're huge dangers. These aren't little dangers. These are enormous dangers, and a lot of the stuff we're going to have to face head on if we're serious about traveling to other planets and colonizing, which I think we really have to do. You know, and I want to know what you think about this. I want to know what you think about black holes. I want to know what you think about threats from space. You can email me anytime, info at scienceanimated.net. That's my email address, info at scienceanimated.net. I did a show a year or two ago about rogue planets, and these are planets that are not tied to any star. They're not bound to any sun. They're not bound by gravity to any celestial object that's larger than it. Something had to happen in in its solar system where it came from that knocked it off its orbital trajectory. And it is just floating around aimlessly. I did a whole show on that. If you want to check that out, go to my website, scienceanimated.net, and you can check out all the podcasts. So some of the stuff is utterly terrifying, but space can be quite beautiful as well. And there's one other way to look at all of this. Instead of being so terrified by celestial events that could, could happen, you could look at it like this. Aren't we awfully lucky to be here? When you have a galaxy, when you have universe that is very active. We're very fortunate. And I am very fortunate to have you listening to this radio show. I love bringing it to you the first Saturday of every month at one o'clock here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. It's a pleasure for me to do so. If it's your first time listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you very much. Don't forget to check out scienceanimated.net, my website, where There is family-friendly animations all about science. I have quite a few different topics on there. You can check that out. If you'd like to support the show, there is the Science Animated Human Body DVD or stream that you can purchase as well. I want to thank everybody for joining me once again here on The S Factor. If you want to check out any of the past shows, go to any of your favorite podcasting services and just type in The S Factor Podcast, and I'll pop right up. Like my Facebook page. You can find me if you go to Facebook and just type in the at symbol, type in at science animated, I will come right up. Any kind of animation that I, any animation I put out there that is new does hit the Facebook page every time. So you'll get to see the latest science animations that way. Also the YouTube channel, which you can all, you can get to all of that through the website or the Facebook page. I'm on TikTok at science animated on Twitter at science animated science animated is all over the place. And until next time, be safe and stay curious. This is Chuck Shazer with the S Factor on Cruise 92.1 WVLT and your favorite podcasting service. Take care, everybody. Bye.